Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos FP's Economics Podcast. Every week we take two data points. We use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's Deputy Editor, with you from Berlin. As usual, Adam Twos, FP's Economics Columnist and Columbia University Professor, is with us from uh, New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So, in the second half of the show, we will be continuing our series on life cycle economics. That's what we're calling it. We are now at the second stage of life. That will be focused on education. But first, as usual, we'll be looking at the news. And the news data point for this week is 50. That's the number of years that the World Economic Forum has been having an annual conference in the Swiss mountain village of Davos that was supposed to be happening this week. Good afternoon. The World Economic Forum began its Davos agenda meetings today virtually as the planned in-person Davos sessions were postponed in light of the Omicron variant. According to the UN's economic report released last week, the world is emerging from the depths of a paralyzing economic crisis, but recovery remains fragile It's the second year in a row that the conference has been called off due to COVID. For the uninitiated, the the Davos conference is is probably the highest profile conference of its kind every year. It draws top CEOs from around the world, leading journalists and thinkers, but also political leaders and heads of state. And at the foreground of this event are, are the sorts of panels you see at any of these big conferences. These are devoted to the future of the global economy and politics This year's theme was supposed to be, quote, shaping an equitable, inclusive, and sustainable recovery. But of course, the most remarkable thing about the conference is is all the luminaries that are gathered in one place at all. And Adam, correct me if I'm wrong, but you are one of the invitees in this year's conference, correct? Yeah, this would have been my third. And I'm doing a panel today, as it happens, on the recovery with some leading public health experts and CEOs. It'll be on Zoom rather than in person in Switzerland, unfortunately. So otherwise, if it were not cancelled, you would be in Switzerland, I realize, and you would be among all these other important figures from politics and business, again, all in this small village. So this leads to my first question. What accounts really for the World Economic Forum's power of convening all these people. I mean, what is exactly its source of power? Does it have some sort of economic, political legitimacy here? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't have any independent source of power or authority other than its, its members and the folks that appear there. Speaking there has the kudos it does also in part now because of its half century of history. I mean, if you think about the people who've appeared there, everyone from Nelson Mandela to Gorbachev to Trump to Xi to Havel. I mean, it really is a who's who. And I think, you know, it does have a certain sort of mystique. I mean, what helped 
draw me in largely was curiosity, to be absolutely honest. And as my wife always says, you know, you don't want to die stupid. If you if you get the invite, you want to know what it's like. And then it turns out to be quite interesting, as you'd expect that kind of gathering to be, at least from the very least from an anthropological standpoint. It's a fascinating venue. Some of the people that show up at Davos are literally princelings and, you know, dynastic rulers, and they really do have huge entourages. It's like watching a shoal of fish move through a crowd. It's extraordinary to see. There's there's people who have to be behind and to the side and in front. And, you know, if the sheik decides to stop and sort of pay some interest to a wellness center or yoga studio or something, the entire group has to reorganize around him. It's really a phenomenon to see. It's also, I think, typical that it's a, it's a holiday resort, right? Davos is a skiing uh, resort, Davos Closters, the two of them. And so there's a sense in which it mixes leisure and business in that way that court society does. In the modern calendar of the global court, if you like, it fits. It's the first major event of the year. And then from there, you go to the Munich Security Conference. And from there, you go to the spring meetings of the IMF and the World Bank. And then over the summer and late summer, there's, of course, the United Nations General Assembly and maybe a G20 meeting or a G7 meeting, and then on from there back to the fall sessions of the IMF and the World Bank. And the people in this kind of circle literally move from one of these events to the other. There's others interspersed, say the Russians do their Gaidar Forum in Moscow in January, and the same people move from one to the next. I mean, its history, I think, is telling. It was started in 1971, and I do think of it as being absolutely emblematic of a certain sort of globalization that's developed over the last half century. It's not radically new in that sense, but it's novel to our last half century epoch. It's an absolute showcase of globalism in the current age from a specifically European point of view, from, you'd have to say, a German-accented Swiss point of view as well. But in that sense, it's it's a novel, it's a novel, as it were, structure of global elite community. So in a way that you're suggesting, I mean, there are obviously all sorts of outlandish conspiracies that get told about events like Davos, basically, you know, we can imagine the kinds of uh, elites gathering together to pull the strings of the global economy or the global political order. Yeah, I mean, obviously, that's somewhat outlandish. But would it be fair, I guess, to imagine some lower stakes conspiracies, I guess to use that word, are in fact happening? I mean, these are elites from around the world that that are gathering, and are they gathering to coordinate their actions and ideas with one another? I mean, is that part of what's going on at Davos? Yeah, for sure, I think. I mean, Davos is quite unabashed about it. In fact, proud of the sort of meetings they've been able to host, right? So there was a historic meeting in the late 80s between the then Greek Prime Minister Papandreou and Turkut Ozal of Turkey that was crucial to diffusing tensions between them uh, there was a famous meeting between Kohl and, uh, you know, Chancellor of West Germany and his East German counterpart at the time, Modro. It was the first public meeting outside South Africa of uh, Mandela and de Klerk took place at, at Davos. The palace, the PLO, met with the Israelis several times there. There are a fair number of spooks on the scene at Davos. You meet very senior security officials And there is an entire floor above the main conference venue reserved for private meetings. That's, as it were, the members only area. It's a bit like being in a swanky airport where the top floor of the airport is for the super elite lounges. And there is a separate elevator, a separate level of security that screens people in there. And one of the advantages, I'm told, of attending Davos is that you can have bilaterals discreetly. 
And it's pretty obvious, I think, in the end that really all, that all of the really exclusive action, whether it's partying or business, takes place in the villas up above uh, Davos Village. So there's a whole extraordinary market in hyper-priced villa accommodation, like Airbnb of the ultra deluxe class for the week. And I mean, you have to say, I mean, the hoi polloi at the conference move around in buses, but the airlift of helicopters up and down the valley the whole time, it's like a military <laughs> operation. I mean, it's just one chopper after another going up and down the valley. I, I did not realize that there are sort of layers of elitism. There are sort of concentric circles. Oh, it's of, all hierarchy. Oh, Cam. Oh, oh, yeah. No, no. I mean, okay. It's like class and within class, within class, within class. I mean, me as CEOs, they only get an entourage of two or three people, I think. But like, you know, the senior <laughs> leadership of countries, they, they show up with squads of people. Fascinating. Well, to move on, I mean, the, the World Economic Forum that organizes this event, it claims to be nonpartisan, but you were alluding to a kind of economic ideology that, that it has. I mean, what exactly is its sort of ideology and how exactly does that affect ordinary people, the folks who, who don't get invited to attend? Well, I think the, the first element and the key element of its ideology is precisely exclusivity. Right, so the the most fundamental idea of Davos ideology is a hierarchical notion of power and order, which basically says there are leaders in the world, and we are going to bring them together, which by definition excludes ordinary people, right, and and pictures the world as though this group of elite people, largely men, increasingly diverse in that respect, but nevertheless largely men, they are the controllers, right. So the idea is somehow if you bring them together, the power is there. It's it's quite naive at some level, of course, because these people are, in some ways, just figureheads. Really, they you know they're the people that ultimately sign the contract or the check. But the whole business deal is drafted by their expert teams, many of whom aren't actually there at Davos, right. So it's a that's I think a key element of its ideology is that sense of being able, in some sense, to influence the world from the very very top. That's that's one element. The nonpartisanship, I think, has to be taken quite seriously in the sense that they also invite an incredibly diverse range of actors. I mean, they're very proud of the fact that in the early 70s, they played host to like liberation theologians from South from Latin America at the time of like the authoritarian military dictatorships there. They weren't afraid to do that. And they've had Greater Thunberg and like the whole range. The ideological element is that they fundamentally believe that all of this can be reconciled, right? So mm. it's the, 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 the wishful thinking element is that, as it were, the whole thing, every circle can be squared. There's no corner too sharp for it not to be softened. And then fundamentally, I think the other element of the ideology is globalism. Again, a similar kind of logic. Every difference can be incorporated. There's nothing too different. In fact, they have a voracious appetite for difference because they can then somehow assimilate it and display their capacity to absorb it. Right from the very beginning, this was a key part of the agenda. I mean, originally, the main focus was on European-American relationships, and it was all about training European business to be as competitive as American. But now it's become this you know, one this gigantic sort of uh, free-for-all, which this system tries to incorporate and demonstrate the compatibility. That's, I think, the, you know, the, the core element. The phrase that always comes to mind for me is win-win solutions. Oh, yeah. The idea that every time I read about, uh, you know, the sort of documents that get produced by the World Economic Forum, it's as if there never has to be a loser to any uh, to any policy question. 
everyone can win and to suggest there may have to be some kind of redistribution of some kind or some loser in reconciling these problems it just never comes up so that's what always dawns on yeah, me so, so classically you know the the discussion of inequality which didn't feature the discussion of taxes as a possible weapon of dealing with them you know because the the solution to inequality is to as it were raise all boats you know to to improve everyone's productivity and wage rather than conceiving even of the idea of redistribution taking from some people to give to others was just not a possible you know not an option <laughs> no. that could be considered <laughs> <laughs> well, we will see uh, what happens. In the meantime, we'll, we'll leave it there and come back uh, with the segment on education. That's a subject also with its own focus on elitism and, and hierarchies of its own. So stick with us. We'll, we'll just take a break. Hi, this show is sponsored by Better Help. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is, he's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, uh, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc., and uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, 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 in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain. And, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to, or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Okay, welcome back. We are starting on our second segment of our Life Cycle series. If you're interested, you can go back to the first segment, which was last week on conception, the economics of conception. We're moving on to a second stage, that is education. And the data point that we have in mind is 1.5 trillion. That's the total amount of money that the United States spent on schooling. That's both for public and private institutions. That's in 2019. That's the most latest figure that I could find. Of course, that raised the question of whether that money is well spent, should 
the people spending it be asking for their money back. It seemed fitting that education, of course, is the second segment here. I mean, we all pretty much spend our upbringing in some form of education or another. So let's start at the beginning. I was thinking we could start with preschool. <laughs> I'm here in Germany. Here, everything prior to first grade isn't even called school. It's, it's called Kita, as, as you know, Adam. That has a kind of pedagogical mission, but it's, it's not really an academic mission. Uh, the people at the schools, at the, at the Kitas, they, they don't even call themselves teachers. They call themselves educators, I guess would be the translation. That's a big contrast with the U.S., where uh, the Biden administration is talking of creating a universal system of pre-K schooling starting at the age of three. Two years of universal high-quality preschool for every three-year-old and four-year-old, no matter what background they come from, puts them in a position to be able to compete all the way through 12 years. Other countries take other approaches. So, Adam, I mean, what's gained or lost by thinking of these really early years of education as a part of a continuum of schooling, per se? These issues of labelling are fascinating. And it's, I mean, in the end, as a parent, you do wonder, like, what exactly goes on with a herd of three-year-olds in a, you know, an educational setting, quote-unquote. There's definitely big historical, political, cultural differences here. I mean, West Germany in particular had very long-standing resistance to any kind of early childhood education outside the home by anyone other than the natural mother or perhaps grandmother of, of children. It was considered to be a kind of violation of the norms of you know, family life. It was deeply imbued in Christian, democratic, Catholic-inspired conservatism that was the dominant ideology of West Germany after World War II, in part as a reaction to the early childhood education attempts of Nazi Germany, right, which were intrusive and totalitarian and so on. Kids started school at six or seven even, and with perhaps a year or two of kindergarten before that. I mean, I spent a couple of years in a village school setting with seven-year-old Germans all around me learning mm. basic literacy. I'd been in school in England since I was four, so it was a, like mm. a huge huge difference. That's changed a lot, though, in the generation that, you know, of Germans now, as you know, you're, you're bringing up your kids now, like, um, indeed, the, what's happened is really an adoption of a much earlier child care model. In mm. fact, on East German lines, I mean, this followed in many ways the inspiration of the East German regime. Uh, and it, as you say, yeah, Kita, I mean, Kita stands for Kindertagesstätte. So it's like child day place. <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't have a and a specific educational mission, and on the contrary, on the on the other hand, in the US, I think exactly the the emphasis is on on education for really for frankly for economic reasons. I mean, it's not as though the United States actually has a well developed early childhood care or education system. In fact, globally, it's amongst rich countries one of the most inadequately provided and one of the most uh, countries in which raising children is most expensive. But the logic in the US is formulated by economists, and it's absolutely mm. overwhelming which is that if you spend a dollar on kids early in their lives, I mean, the rates of return that are estimated, they vary a bit, but they vary between like seven to one to 10 to one, right? So, you know, hmm. one way or the other, there is a universal agreement, I think, that money spent early is vastly more productive and productive, not just from the point of view of future earnings expectation, which is, as it were, the standard economist measure, but also with regard to social costs, so some of the largest benefits come from the fact that kids that are introduced early to childhood education have much lower rates of criminality, much lower, lower rates of incarceration, of mental health problems. And those that saves tens of thousands of dollars later. 
just to follow up here, I mean, just to, and, and to clarify, the economic argument is the argument that academic gains that are made in early education that that head start is maintained afterwards. I mean, because I, I ask because the teachers uh, the, here in Germany, they they uh, because I've brought this point up. I you know I say well you know, they're starting only in first grade to to learn to read, as you pointed out, and I said well. Isn't that a problem if people are learning earlier in other countries? And they said, no, they catch up by third grade, then they're at the same level. They're making a contrary argument that it's sort of irrelevant to start later, they, they catch up, and then they're at the same level. But but you're saying there is sort of economic data to suggest otherwise. Yeah, overwhelming evidence that suggests the contrary. Yeah. And Germany, in fact, has a huge question to answer about the inefficacy of its system in dealing with social disadvantage. Because that sort of prediction is true if you're in stable environments with kids in, in homes which provide a supportive environment for educational growth. Uh, it is simply not true in, in other settings. And um, that's where the injection of early public funding makes a huge difference. And no, I mean, the evidence is, is overwhelming for the efficacy um, of these kind of interventions. Got it. So let's move on to the next phase of childhood schooling. I mean, I guess a broad question would be, what, what is the relationship between public investment and educational outcomes? I mean, if we look globally, is it just a kind of simple relationship? More spending means better results? As a first approximation, yes. Absolutely, oh. I think. Uh, more money spend means more and better schooling and better results. And Globally, the basic problem is that poor societies can ill afford to set aside resources for education. So kids do not go to school, particularly girls. Uh, the World Bank for a while had the slogan, you know, if you've got to spend a dollar, spend a dollar on helping a, a poor girl in a poor society to learn to read. And that's by far and away the most effective use of a dollar that you, could, that you can make. You might be tempted to think that at higher levels of income, there are diminishing returns, and there probably are. The relationship becomes more complex in richer societies. I mean, so complex, in fact, that it's quite difficult to disentangle cause and effect because it's not surprising, after all, that rich societies with highly educated people should value education and should spend more on it. And then their children end up more productive. And so you end up finding correlation between higher education spending, even you know, between societies and within societies in areas where they have higher education spending, you end up with higher professional success and long-term income. But what is cause and what is effect, right? Is it simply that, for instance, home background is driving both? It's driving both higher taxes for education, higher education spending, and better labor market outcomes by way of all sorts of mechanisms. So how do you test for the particular impact of higher spending? And so American economists have been very active in looking for what they call natural experiments. So moments where education spending either rises or falls for reasons unconnected with the social setting in which it happens. So 2008 hits the financial crisis. Many American states have bal balanced budget rules. As their tax revenue falls, they have to cut spending. One of the things they cut spending on is education. So it's just a shock that comes from Wall Street that cuts education spending. What happens? Within a predictable period of time, um, school performance and child performance and tests falls off as education spending goes down. If you increase money throughput through the system, you would expect on the basis of all the evidence collected from all around the world to see improvement, perhaps not at the rate that you would want, and you can increase the efficiency of it. But you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't retreat from the basic idea that yes, higher spending results in better outcomes. 
You mentioned natural experiments, and I thought I'd just follow up by asking, it seems like the pandemic is going to be its own natural experiment on some of these questions. I guess economists will be studying sort of the effects yeah, of school absolutely. closures for, for, for years, probably for decades, uh, as, as, as a yeah. lot of data And I think here. one has to fear that it's, it's going to be catastrophic. It's absolutely, it's absolutely catastrophic, both in its overall impact and in the selectivity. So, you know, it massively compounds social disadvantage and cultural disadvantage. So, yes, it, it will indeed provide a very powerful and I think absolutely alarming demonstration of the necessity of formal schooling in formal settings outside the home and so on. So I thought I'd ask about another dilemma that I guess comes up in, in, in rich countries. I'm thinking here about all the extracurricular education that, that's just so much a part of, of the middle class experience in the United States, at least, uh, that I know of, uh, you know, the sports practices, the music lessons, I, the ballet lessons that I think my daughter may now want. I see how all that makes for, you know, an enriching personal experience. But does any of that have a measurable impact on, on educational outcomes? I mean, or would that time and money just be better off in economic terms devoted to studying the core academic subjects. I mean, you know, maybe even in the form of the kinds of cram schools we hear about in other countries and in Asia specifically. Yeah, I mean, uh, again, this has been like, you know, extensively studied, as you might imagine. Um, so <laughs> I found, I mean, I, I trawled through this stuff. And then, you know, one of the largest studies I could find of uh, a large group of American high school students found unambiguously there was a positive relationship uh, between extracurricular activities and uh, ACT stores and GPA school uh, GPAs, so that's their you know their their grades for their schoolwork and their college admissions tests. In fact, um, they found it was linear and and uh, didn't show diminishing returns. So the optimal combination. I'm just going to hmm. let this you know settle with you, Cameron. The optimal combination of extracurricular activities that yielded this greatest return was five to six extracurricular activities per week on average, 10 hours of participation with no more than one competitive extracurricular activity. So so ramp up here. So you're going to start with music, you're going to do ballet. This is just the beginning. You need to <laughs> I have two kids. More, that means 20 hours. You're going to optimize this. <laughs> means no more podcast, I think. <laughs> yeah, you really do. You're going to have to be cranking. Um, the... Um, Youth sports spending in the US was not as large as I thought it was going to be. I mean, it's apparently only $19 billion, which strikes me as kind of small compared to our pet food test, right? I mean, pet food spending $35 billion. So it's like half what Americans spend on pets. And it's also less than um, what they already spend on tutoring. So it doesn't seem as though there's a sort of trade-off here. I guess finally, I wanted to ask about kind of uh, the elite institutions that get a lot of attention, obviously. What proportion of our overall educational resources does it really make sense to be devoting to these you know upper end elite institutions um i mean obviously we're talking about social reproduction i mean producing an elite class you know de facto seems like one of the the functions of the school system but presumably there's also a point of diminishing returns when investing in an elite so I don't know. Is there a country that you think gets this balance most most right? Yeah, I mean, this is a really strong difference between um, the United States, France, Britain, on the one hand, which have, you know, well-established elite university institutions, and on the other hand, Germany, which really doesn't. I mean, this isn't to say that 
that Germany doesn't have class or social inequality reproduced through education. Of course, it does. And all the statistics show that. And it's also reproduced on ethnic grounds in Germany on the basis of migration backgrounds in the same way as race, for instance, works its way through the United States education system. But what a society like that, or for that matter, Italy, or doesn't have is an Ivy League in Oxbridge, a Grand École type model. It's difficult for me to talk about this to an extent because I'm so deeply, you know, kind of wound up in this entire question. My entire biography is shaped by it. Like I, you know, I, I've I've been in the German system, like, and I appreciate its advantages. But there's a reason I don't live and work in Germany. Uh, there's a reason mm. I left. Right, I left as a kid to finish high school in Britain. So as to track following my parents and indeed my grandparents mm. into the Oxbridge system very deliberately. That was, as it were, the, the mission I was raised for in the same way as, you know, many American or Asian kids are raised with their parental aspirations stamped on their on their biographies. And there's a reason I've ended up, you know, uh, on the brain drain, on the gravy train. Um, to a private college in the United States, um, mm. uh, which pays me very well and affords me a fabulous living. Like, and but that doesn't you're exist. You're making in it Europe sound selfish, form. Adam. You're making it. You're making this all sound well, selfish. I mean, I mean, at it's some not, level, but, but, but you have level, you you do you do contribute to a, a, a society in this way. That's what these institutions are for. They have a function and they have an important role. And and you know, I mean, I, we shouldn't downplay that. What sort of society do they contribute to, right? So, I mean, the really, the really striking thing here is that the elite institutions in Britain and France are grosso modo, broadly speaking, and people may scream a little bit when I say this, who know them well, but nevertheless, compared to American institutions, funded at public university levels. So the per capita mm -hmm. grant to Cambridge per student it teaches is the same as that to any other British university. Now, Cambridge has an endowment, which is large by European standards. Oxford and Cambridge are the only universities with large endowments, and they're just outside the top 10 by American standards. So they don't compete with the Harvards and the Yales, but they're kind of level pegging with Columbia and down from there. But they're utterly exceptional. So you can have elitism um, meritocratic elitism, say, mm. on the French model, without the giant disproportions mm. in funding that we take for granted in the US. And even in the US, the really astonishing thing is that public funding for the United States university system is absolutely OECD average. It's just the same as, as, as other rich countries. It's substantial, but not massive. So you can get a Berkeley-type system or a Michigan um, for European funding levels. The Big difference is just the spectacular add-on, right, that the American upper class affords itself by means of the alumni networks, the giant donations to big American colleges. And that element, I think, of elitism and meritocracy is much harder to defend. I mean, it's not actually easy to see how you justify it because it's self-evidently the accumulation of advantage. If we look at the statistics... We know that private universities in the United States reproduce inequality on an absolutely gigantic scale and compound it, right? If you want to see the bits of the American university system that don't, that actually provide meritocratic upward mobility on a huge scale, it's my colleagues at CUNY and SUNY um, that do that work, and they do it on a gigantic scale. And it's you know a great glory of the American education system that those kind of routes um, are open that translate people from the bottom 20% of the income distribution to the top 20% of the income distribution on a huge scale um, through low-cost, publicly provided, open access, uh, higher ed. 
Yeah, well, uh, I don't know if you heard, but uh, my daughter, the the future ballerina, I guess now we just decided, is barged in here. Uh, so I guess I, I should get going. Uh, so maybe we will leave the conversation here, but we will continue the life cycle series next week. So join us for that. Okay, that's it for another episode of Ones and Twos. Thanks, as always, to my co-host, Adam Twos. Listeners, as always, we like hearing your feedback. Please email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com or tweet us at ones and twos pod. Remember, that's twos as in Adam's name, T-O-O-Z-E. And of course, uh, remember to follow and review us uh, on your favorite podcast app. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Laura rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tatey. The executive editor of FP Podcast is Dan Efron. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. 
taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador. Coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.